0: in the beginning today, it's not really what the sermon is about, so this will be split into two parts really, but be turning to Isaiah 1, I'm first going to read from a couple of chapters in God's Word, here he sent a message to his people through Isaiah the prophet, and he says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He's writing to Israel, but this is something that everybody needs to hear. For the Eternal has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now remember, this isn't just ancient history, this is a prophecy for the end time. God caused the prophets to write down things that either had happened or were about to happen to the nation back then, But Paul made it very clear that these things were written for those of of us upon whom the ends of the earth have come, and are included here because we are to get the message from them. So he says his people have rebelled against him. That's a prophecy for today. The ox knows his owner, the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people does not consider And then he gives a description of his people here at the end time. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. That doesn't mean you have a little iniquity. Laden is like an animal with a pack on its back, uh, loaded with all it can handle. Laden, in other words. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. Everything is being corrupted in the nation today. They have forsaken the eternal. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They are gone away backward, going just the opposite direction of where they should be going. Our nation is going away from God, not toward God. So the direction is entirely wrong. Why should you be stricken anymore? Why will you revolt more and more? No, he says, you will revolt more and more. There's a place where he says, Why will you die, O Israel? I think in Jeremiah. Or it maybe it's Ezekiel. Why will you die? I think it is Ezekiel. And then he says, The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. And when he says, The whole head is sick, He's talking about our entire government is sick. Your head is what controls your whole body. And what controls this nation is sick in the head. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Now, we can blame our leaders all we want. But from the foot... From the bottom up, all the way to the top, there's no soundness. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed. Have you smelled infected sores? Oh, you can hardly stand it. You almost faint sometimes. they can be so bad. They've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment just raw and open with the filth and the stench thereof. He says, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. This is partially fulfilled as of this year. We had a lot of burning and looting this past year. And if you think that's bad, wait till the coming year. Because what happened this year of 2020, was basically blamed on shooting a few black people by the cops. And it spread pretty wildly and was paid for. Some of the looters were paid for doing what they were doing, the rioters, uh, by people who want to see this country destroyed. Now, it was the prelude to something that is going to get much, much worse. So we're already in it. This prophecy is being fulfilled as we sit here but it's going to get worse and worse until our cities are burned with fire. Uh, Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. We have Chinese moving in, we have uh, Russians moving in, people from all over the world, South America's moving up here. They're coming in from everywhere, not just to live here, but now soldiers as well on our soil. So, in fact, China just bought one of the bigger ranches in Texas, which is near an Air Force base. So, it's happening all over the country. And it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. We know many scriptures that say that we're going to have occupying forces come in and subjugate us. So, he's talking about that here. Our streets are getting more and more desolate, as people are told to stay home, don't go anywhere, uh, less and less people in the streets, and they're cracking down even more now, saying that it's reviving, and now we need to crack down even more so. They're destroying the economy, destroying businesses by the tens of thousands. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard and as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers as a deceived city. Not much left, in other words. He said, except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we had been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he calls us Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to God. He, He likens us to that. And he goes on down and says he's sick of it. Uh, Verse 21, how is the faithful city become a harlot? He calls Israel the great whore in Ezekiel 16. He calls her that in Revelation 18. And in Isaiah 1, he calls Israel a harlot. It was full of judgment. There was some judgment, some righteousness, some good uh, sound court system. But not anymore. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Killing babies by the millions, among other people. Uh, Verse 23, your princes are rebellions and companions of thieves. Uh, we got people right at the very top now. One man who may become president, who doesn't have a brain left. Uh, But his son, and he, and that uh, lady with him. They've been in bed with the Chinese for a long time now, selling us out. And here they are about to take over, it appears. Uh, Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. That's our whole political system. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come to them. They're not concerned about you and me and the people of the land. They're concerned about payola and deals they can make and to get rich themselves. He does give us a little hope down here in verse 26. I will restore your judges, after all this happens, as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts with righteousness people are going to have to be converted to righteousness. So he says that's coming, but right now, it's pretty bad. Let's go to Isaiah 59 and read a little bit more. Behold, the eternal's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy, that he can't hear. You hear people even now saying, well, we need to pray to Jesus, we need to pray to the Lord, we need to pray to God, that he'll deliver us, but... God will bless America. God bless America. still hear it sometimes. No way. Why would he bless a harlot? Why would he bless a nation who has no judgment in the land and who is full of thieves and liars and murderers? You ask God to bless that? Not a chance. Not going to happen. So he says, he can hear, but he's not going to pay attention. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It happened to the church in a spiritual way, being cast out of his mouth, and it's happened to our nation. He's not paying any attention to our prayers for deliverance. And he won't. There's not going to be some secret rapture that just takes all these so-called Christians away. He says... They're not hid, your sins, for your hands are defiled with blood, abortion, other forms of murder, the Clinton files and all the murders that they've committed, and on and on it goes. Your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perverseness. Our whole nation, the politicians, the press, the people, everybody, from head to foot. None calls for justice, nor pleads for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. Both sides of the political spectrum are lying through their teeth. They conceive mischief. They think it up. They figure out ways to make money through mischief. And they bring forth iniquity. They hatch poisoned spider eggs and weave the spider's web. wonder if that's the Internet. It's full of poison. He that eats of their eggs dies, and that which is crushed breaks out into a viper. So you try to get rid of it, and it just gets worse. Works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hand. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. We have top politicians right now saying that they are going to kill anyone who's on the other side of the political fence from them. They're going to send them to FEMA camps, they're going to kill them. That's being said openly. It's not hidden anymore, it's open. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace, they know not. They have no clue how to have peace. And there is no judgment in their goings. No judgment in what they do. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goes therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither does justice overtake us. You can't find it anywhere anymore. Remember those words here. I'm going to read something else to you in a minute. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. We'd like to see an answer to the problems in our nation. There isn't one. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. Our nation has no clue where it's going, where it's headed, or how to get there. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We're in desolate places as dead men. We roar like bears. We growl and howl and scream about it, and mourn sore like doves and feel sorry. We look for judgment, but there is none For salvation, but it is far from us. And it goes on and talks about our iniquities and so on. I don't have time to go into all that prophecy. But now I'm going to read you an article that came out as of last night and this morning. This is written by Mike Adams of Natural News. It's a fairly short article, so I want to just read it to you in the light of what we just read. I wanted to read what God has to say before reading this to you. Did you get what we just read? I think the message is pretty clear there, wasn't it, about what this nation is and what its leaders are and what we as its people are. Pretty clear. This is entitled, The Betrayal is Now Complete. SCOTUS, that's the Supreme Court of the U.S., Dismissal of Texas lawsuit illuminates the final remaining option to save the republic. This throws light on the fact that there's only one option left to try to save this nation. Just one option, that's what he's saying. The state of Texas, joined by I think 17 other states, asked the Supreme Court to look at the election and the abnormalities and the cheating and fraud that is there, and they said no. And that's where he starts this article. Tonight, the U.S. Supreme Court chose to dismiss the Texas lawsuit for lack of legal standing. Now, that's a term in courts that means you don't have a right to stand up and talk about this, so we're not going to hear it. That's essentially what they're saying. The court did not hear the merits of the case, nor did it decide on them. It simply declared that Democrat controlled states can rig regula- elections, commit ballot fraud, cheat and steal, and whatever they want, even, in their, even if their actions are wildly unfair to the other states which are impacted by the outcome of federal elections. There are federal laws regulating elections, and there are state laws and county laws regulating elections, and they're supposed to be done in a fair and judicious way, okay? As of tonight, December 11th, 2020, we no longer live in a functioning constitutional republic. It's over. It's done. The Constitution is totally dead, as of last night. There is no longer any controlling legal authority that is functioning in America. I think if we're aware at all of what goes on in politics, we know Congress got sold out long, long ago. They're nothing but political hacks and whores. They could care less about us as we just read in Scripture. They're there for themselves. So they lost any integrity they had long, long ago. Decades ago, if they ever had any, really, all the way back. But it's gotten worse in the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Until there's no integrity left. Just none. Now, there's three branches of government. Congress, I mentioned first. It's... Totally gone as far as any uh, judgment or, or fairness of any kind. They've all sold out. Presidency, Daniel 4 says God puts over the nations the basest of men. The absolute worst of men he puts over the nations. And the nations of Israel have as bad or worse than anywhere else. Our last several presidents have been the scum of the earth. Our last few presidents have been like the dumpster behind the fish market. I had a contract in Alaska with a fish processing plant for some time, and uh, all the guts and slurry went out the back door into bins, big plastic bins, which I had a A lift on the pickup that could pick them up and haul them to the landfill. That was a smell. Oh, rotten fish. The gulls would follow, and I'd go to the landfill and pour all that out. And the gulls would still eat it, but they had to hold their nose to do it. That's bad stuff. That's our precedence. Pedophiles. 12-year-old boys and girls that they're after. They kill the babies and molest the 12, 13, 14-year-olds. And they lie and steal and cheat and sell us out. All the way back to George H.W. Bush comes first to mind who says we're the Illuminati, we're the Illumined Ones. We're going to have the thousand points of life that are going to reset the earth and have a one-world government. And they've been pretty open about it ever since. So they're part of the beast power. They're part of the communism that is to take over. You know, Satan's government is essentially communism. He told the angels, we'll take over, and we'll have everything, and we'll share everything wonderfully. And then he tried, and was repulsed by God and the holy angels. But he hasn't shared anything with the demons except trouble. And he is trying to get humans to have everything in common except the ones at the top. That's the way communism works. So Satan would rule the world and those who followed him, the demons would be his peasants. So we have a few elites today who want to control the world and all the wealth and have the rest of whoever they decide to let survive be their peasants and work for them. And we have many, many communists in the government in Washington, D.C., who have been trying to install communism now for a long time, and now they're there. They're right on the edge of it, and it is going to happen, says the book. So, two branches of the three are corrupt to the core. And Now, as of last night, the Supreme Court said, we will not hear about illegal things. We will not hear about fraud. You don't have a right to stand before us and even bring this up. We're throwing it out without ever even hearing it. Is that justice in the land? Not to even hear it, whether it be true or false. When they throw that out, the Constitution is gone. Nobody listens to the Constitution anymore. They don't care. Biden doesn't, if he remembers it. Kamala Harris certainly doesn't. Donald Trump doesn't believe in the Constitution. He does anything he wants. He doesn't care about the Constitution of the United States. George Bush, the younger, just said it was another G.D. piece of paper. Direct quote. That's our presidents. Those are the ones who have been ruling us the rights that we think we have as a nation are now gone. When you can't take a grievance such as this election has been and even have it heard, there is no justice in the land and the head is sick. All three branches. And when the whole thing is sick, there's no place else to go. If you can't go to the Supreme Court and have them hear your case, you've got nothing. And this just isn't Trump and his family. This was 17 states that joined with it. And I think, what was it? I read 33 Republican congressmen or so many also added their name to the list. Please hear this. Yep. I repeat here, there is no longer any controlling legal authority that is functioning in America. We are totally dysfunctional as a government. It's done. Even the death of Ginsburg, it seems, was not enough to lend the court a majority of jurists who might choose to uphold the rule of law. Even the Trump appointees refused to hear it. It's all corrupt. Every one of them, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. He goes on. The rule of law has now collapsed. The courts no longer even pretend to function. Censorship is extreme. The media print brazen lies, and the elections are so blatantly rigged that the cheating is carried out on camera. Biden even said, we have the greatest machine for fraud in an election that has ever existed. He said that out of his mouth. All the forces that despise this nation and which hate liberty and justice are now aligned against any functioning civil court action which might recognize and reverse the great injustices that have been carried out against this nation by Democrats and deep state traitors. And I would include a lot of Republicans as deep state traitors as well. There's nobody there that's righteous and good. doesn't matter what party it is. Yet, despite overwhelming, irrefutable evidence of blatant election rigging, fraud and foreign interference, local judges are too corrupt to hear the cases. They throw them out. District courts are too corrupt to decide on the cases. And the highest court in the land is too corrupt to even grant the case legal standing. America has been plunged into lawlessness by the U.S. Supreme Court. This is a turning point. They won't even hear and try to find justice or judgment. There is no coming back from the path of emerging history that SCOTUS has just set in motion, and this path will be slathered with the blood of patriots and tyrants war. Every peaceful option to resolve this election has now been exhausted. There's no recourse. There's no place else to go. The remaining options will all involve kinetic engagement, that is, active guns, knives, He says, America will now bleed. This is certain. I can read you some scriptures that say that's going to happen. Then he has a subtitle, Great Clarity Has Now Been Achieved on the Remaining Option. Remember, he said there's only one option left to save the republic. Congress won't do a thing. The president won't do a thing, or the so-called president-elect either and neither will the courts. So there's only one option left if you want to save the republic. The final option now remaining to save the republic is President Trump's national security option, which would mirror the actions of Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Trump must now declare the fraudulent election to be an act of cyber warfare against America, deploy the military to key cities, and initiate mass arrests of court judges, mayors, governors, election officials, complicit journalists, members of Congress, and everyone else who has colluded in this criminal conspiracy to overthrow the United States of America. Fortunately, this is precisely the option for which President Trump has been preparing since at least September of 2018. I've been covering these preparations in my Situation Update podcasts, which bring to light activities of the Department of Defense, the DIA, the Special Op Forces, and Cyber Wars Affairs Soldiers, all of which are preparing for Trump to give the green light on an operation that would take down America's enemies with ferocity and determination. So apparently he's been preparing for declaring the Insurrection Act, and martial law, and getting rid of some bad people. Okay. He says, Trump now surely realizes this plan is the only remaining option to fulfill his oath to defend the United States of America against enemies foreign and domestic, which he swore to do. SCOTUS has just handed Trump the clarity he needed to carry out this historic, necessary step to defend this republic in its final hour when enemies across the country and around the world believe they have succeeded in their suffocation of liberty and the planned demise of the United States of America. That's where we are. By Saturday today, midday, I will have two new Situation Update podcasts posted. Uh, here is Friday's podcast, which reveals all the actions already underway to prepare special operations forces and pro-America elements of the Department of Defense for their finest hour and most important mission of all, the saving of our constitutional republic. The Democrats have already said, Biden and Harris included, that they will institute communism. That's what they have in mind. He continues, the question now is, so this is the only solution there is, now we have a question. Will Trump find the courage to give the order? That's the big question. If he does, and he sends those troops out, and arrests these people, the whole of the democratic side of the nation will rise up immediately and begin to burn cities and create civil war. If he doesn't, and the other party gets in and starts instituting communism, taking away guns, taking away what liberties we have. Biden has already said he'll have a 100-day complete lockdown with masks and everything. And those who are on the other side would then revolt against that. So either way, you're going to have war. Either way. Now, if Trump doesn't have the courage to he does have the courage to sign it. There is grounds and all Democrats' minds, basically, for assassination. So he could very easily die if he does declare martial law and start arresting people. We know from Scripture that our president and vice president are going to disappear. Now, whether that's speaking of Trump and Pence, I don't at this point know. He might not sign it, And he might let the Democrats in there. But then you're going to have a patriot uprising who might kill them. So either way, the scripture is going to be fulfilled. We've had it. But I wanted to... Okay, he says, the question now is, will Trump find the courage to give the order? If he does not... America falls to communist China and is plunged into unrestricted domestic warfare and civil war. He's in a position where we're going to have war if he does, and we're going to have war if he doesn't. 2020 was the beginning of this, and it isn't over. It's just going to get worse day by day, week by week, and month by month until we are totally destroyed one-third dying of famine and pestilence, one-third destroyed by military, one-third the captivity, and a sword after them, Ezekiel 5 and other places. That's where we are, brethren. The moment of truth has arrived. There's no more waiting. We're at the crossroads. Last night proved the absolute baseness of the third branch of government, the Supreme Court. And when you have no place to go where there's any justice in the land, as Isaiah 1 and 59 say, it's over. No place to go but fight. And somebody's going to start a fight. Because Jeremiah 50 and 51 says there'll be rumors that in another year, violence in the land Ruler against ruler. So not just the people shooting each other, but rulers fighting and destroying and killing one another. We're at that point. It's about to start. And that context in Jeremiah 50 and 51 is of the nation also being invaded. So we're getting to that point, and there are Chinese and Russian troops gathering and Canada, they're gathering in Mexico and other parts of South America, and they now have a flotilla of Chinese ships heading into the Pacific near us. We're close. It may be three or four, five, six months before the actual attack comes. I don't know how long it'll be. But with what happened last night, the last bastion of hope is gone. So here we are. You better be ready. better find your God. I thought that was worth spending a little time on. Now, let's get on to something else. I used to look upon the Feast of Dedication as Hanukkah or as a Jewish festival of lights. I looked upon it, I guess, uh over the decades in the church as a probably uh, pagan thing or an aspect of Judaism, which they were doing, but it didn't affect me as a member of God's church. And I held that opinion without really looking into it for decades. We from, I guess from childhood on, once I ever heard of Hanukkah, and I just compared it to the what is it, how many nights of Christmas, or whatever, however the song goes. And I thought, well, that's just something the Jews do. And I am probably one of the most vocal, and the loudest, and the most persistent in saying that Judaism is a religion of the devil. And it is. Christ was very, very clear when he condemned the Pharisees and told them that they were of their father, the devil. So they, and their religion at that time, not only the Pharisees, but the Sadducees and the Essenes, had somewhat different beliefs about resurrection and other things. But they all had Judaism at their root. And you can go through all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and when you see Israel departing from God... They always went into the gods of this world. That was just... I mean, you look at the record of the kings. One king would be righteous and serve God, and the next one would go to Asheroth and all the pagan gods and deities and uh, wouldn't cut down the groves and would go to them and worship felixes and so on. That's been the history of Israel throughout. And by the time Christ walked the earth, the Pharisees, he says, were strictly and openly sons of the devil. That's just who they were. And he, even in the end of Matthew 23, disfellowshipped them and said, I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those whom I send." First of all, he said, to myself and those whom I send. He was about to establish the New Testament church and send the apostles. And the Pharisees did not accept the Apostles. And even the Apostle Paul, who was one of them, was killing Christians, thinking he did God a service. So there's nothing righteous about Judaism, okay? I think we could all agree to that at this point. Uh, The Scripture is very, very clear on that. But just a very few years ago... uh, I read there in John 10 about Christ being in the temple at the Feast of Dedication. So I began to think about it. Why Why does it specify that? He was in the temple every Sabbath. It says several places in there he'd be in the temple on the Sabbath day leading out of the Scriptures. So uh, the Feast of Dedication lasts eight days, so there's a Obviously, at least one weekly Sabbath somewhere in there. And it could have been that he was just there on the weekly Sabbath during the Feast of Dedication. Might have been all there was to it. But if it had been just the Sabbath, and the Feast of Dedication didn't matter at all, then why does it mention it? Why is it even in there if it was just the Sabbath, and he was there, and had nothing to do with the Feast of Dedication? So I began to look into it a bit, and I saw that, indeed, there's a lot of Jewish tradition there. And Jewish tradition is, some of it, historically correct. A lot of it is not. Just the wild dreams of some rabbi somewhere. Uh, And written from a Jewish standpoint, even if it is historical, so that they twist and change things to suit what they like. Now, they see in the Scriptures that there is a calendar, and they understand that it has to do with the moon and the sun. But if the moon and the sun tell them that the new moon is today, and they don't like the day it falls on, they simply change. The time. So even though they have a fairly good working idea of how the calendar is, they deny it if they don't like it. They don't do what God says in the heavens. So even though they understand it to some degree, they lean to their own judgment and their own desires instead of just doing what God put up there. They won't do that. So Christ was very correct in condemning them soundly. All right, let's look at this a little bit from the standpoint of the Jews and the things that have happened in the past that are in the Bible. The first thing that came to my mind was the book of Esther. Now the Jews, even to this day, make a huge deal out of Purim, and uh, what happened there. Because if you remember the story, Esther was the niece of Mordecai and was a worshiper of the true God, as was Mordecai. So they were righteous Jews in the kingdom, and Mordecai was in the government of those days. Now, the king got disgusted with his wife because she wouldn't do what he said. So he got rid of her and was looking for a new queen. And uh, Esther was a beautiful woman. And she became an applicant to become queen. Um, her Her uncle Mordecai was kind of behind this. Because he was part of the government, and he wanted a good queen in there, and he thought, hmm, my niece would be a good one to be the queen. So she became queen, to, to cut the story short. But Mordecai and Esther had a an enemy in the government as well, Haman, and he tried to have them killed. And in fact, he hatched a plot to have all Jews killed. He was an Edomite as I recall. The book of Obadiah is written about the Edomites and their hate for Israel, among other places, in Isaiah and so on. So, they prayed to God, Mordecai and Esther, and those that they knew that they could trust, and asked God to deliver them. Well, God did deliver them, and Haman had built a gallows to hang Mordecai and Esther and Jews on, and he and he got hung on it along with his sons 10 of them well jews were to be killed throughout the empire not just around the king or the palace but that was a world ruling empire and word had gone out that from the king on Haman's conspiracy there were conspiracies back then uh, to have them all killed Now, the king couldn't change his decree that the Jews could all be killed. But, after the story was told to the king, he says, Okay, I can't change my decree, but I'll give you permission to kill them ahead of time. Wow. And that's what happened. They killed their enemies. So, it was recognized that God delivered the Jews, basically. So, at the end of the book of Esther... A book in the Bible, they set up Purim, which was done in remembrance of God's deliverance. And they were going to celebrate Purim from that day forward every year to remember the deliverance of God. Now, there's nothing pagan about that, and these were righteous Jews who were worshiping the true God. They weren't of a religion of Judaism, not then, nor were they worshiping false gods. They were worshiping the true God, and they're the ones that set Purim up. Now, if this had just been a tradition of the Jews and nothing more, would God have included it in the Bible? Or did he include the book of Esther in the Bible For those upon us upon whom the ends of the world have come to remind us that God can deliver and does deliver his people is the story of the Exodus in there to show that God can and does deliver his people. Do we not have prophecies of the end time which show that God is going to deliver his people? We touched on it there in Isaiah 1 where he says, as a nation, we're terrible. But he says, I will restore, and I will redeem and deliver, if you read on down. And I just got to it and and didn't go on into that. So that story is there as an object lesson for us. That God is there to deliver us if we will serve him, and he will take care of our enemies. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets are full of that. And Christ himself greets that in Matthew 24. Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape, that I will deliver you, and so on. So, the book of Esther is something that's celebrated by Judaism today. They make a big deal. They even have a stage play. And they have somebody appointed to be Mordecai, and somebody Helen, and somebody the king, and somebody to be Haman. And when Haman comes on stage, they all hiss and boo, and they make a big deal out of it. So it is a tenet and a part of the religion of Judaism. But that's not how it started. That's not how it began. They do keep some traditions of the Scripture. They also keep traditions of men. Now, it's our job to sort out what comes from paganism and what comes from God. That's our job, is to sort it out. Because everything the Pharisees did in Christ's day was not wrong. They kept the Sabbath. That was not wrong. Okay? Is the Sabbath a tradition of Jews because they kept it as a part of Judaism? Still do to this day. They don't keep it right, but they still keep it. Do we throw the Sabbath out because the Jews keep it? No. God instituted it. So we've got to sort through this and figure out, what's the purpose of this? How did it begin? And is it something that God would have us do or not? Can I keep the Feast of Dedication and be comfortable with it? Or do I keep looking over and saying, The eight days of Christmas or whatever it is, because it's been perverted. I think I commented the other day that this is a festival of lights, because apparently there was a miracle where the oil kept burning through the whole time of the dedication of the temple as a miracle. Now, that's not established in Scripture. It is part of the history or doctrine or... uh, Tradition of the Jews, that that's what happened. Did it happen? I have no way of really knowing. I do know that God does work that way sometimes. Um, First Kings 17. Elijah was back there, and God sent him to live with this widow, and said, she'll be ready for you, and she'll take care of you. And he performed a miracle... Whereby the oil, she was out of oil, she was out of meal. She only had enough for one small meal. She says, then my son and I are going to lie down and die. And Elijah said, fix me some first. And she did. And then he told her, the oil will not fail and the meal will not go away. And he lived with her for very possibly up to three years in her house with her little son. And the meal never went away. There was always flour in the barrel. Always. There was always oil in the cruise. Now, if I use olive oil over there, it's not very long until the bottle's empty and i got to go refill it. She didn't have to refill it. God caused the oil and the meal to always be there. In Christ's ministry on the earth, he turned five little fishes into enough to feed a multitude and loaves of bread. So he shows in Scripture times when he will by miracle cause certain things to happen. So did he cause the oil to last for eight days so they could have light in the dedication of the temple? I don't know. But I see a precedent that he does sometimes operate that way in Scripture. And examples, that's not all of them, of where he's done that kind of thing. Extended Hezekiah's life 15 years. Another good one. His life didn't go away. It continued for 15 years. So, uh, he does things like that. So, that could be part of the uh, pattern that God uses. So, I have no reason to doubt it. Now, if it didn't happen, and the Jews dreamed it up, it's still not pagan. didn't have a pagan origin. Now, what about the temple? We're going to get to the New Testament a little bit, and I, I'm going to show you some things in the context that I think could be important. But, the Ark of the Covenant, when it was made in the wilderness... When it was finished, they had a big celebration and dedicated the Ark of the Covenant to God, and his glory came there. When Solomon built his temple, we could go back to uh, Nehemiah, well, not Nehemiah, uh, there in Kings. We could go back there and see that... When the time came to dedicate that temple, it was a big deal. Lots of sacrifices. Solomon prayed a very long, wonderful prayer, at the dedication of the temple. It wasn't anything pagan about it. It was God's temple, and God did come and fill it with his glory. Now, you go to Ezra, Nehemiah. In both cases there, when they finished building the temple in Ezra, they had a dedication, And some important things occurred there. Then in Nehemiah, when they had built the wall of Jerusalem, they had a dedication of the wall. So the precedent is in the Bible that any time anything important is built for God, that there is a dedication of it. Okay? And that it is a big deal because it's dedicated to the great God. Now, when Herbert Armstrong built the, the auditorium in Pasadena... He had a plaque made that was on the side of the building that called it the house of God. It didn't have a pagan origin. It was built by pagan builders, I guess. But it was conceived because of the scriptures and having a place to go worship God. And he called it the house of God. Ezra calls it the house of the great God the temple that was built in his day. So we do have precedent throughout for uh, those dedication ceremonies, and they were planned ahead of time as a point as well to make. They didn't just finish it and then say, oh, well, let's, let's gather up and have a party. You bake a cake and, you know, no. They had it all planned well ahead of time. When this is finished, it's going to be a big deal. Now, you can read in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, about the temple that is to be built here at the end time, and you will find that it is a future prophecy, coming up very shortly now, where another temple will be built. Temple has to be built, Jerusalem has to be built, just as in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it now appears that they'll be built, to me, together at the same time, 70-week prophecy. Uh, not the temple, and then Jerusalem, as I thought could happen when we had more time. But now as I see time getting short in this country and this world coming apart, uh, it appears that with the time that I believe is remaining, uh, they probably will be built simultaneously and then desecrated soon after. But the point I was going to make is that there is also going to be a dedication of this in-time temple So, there was a dedication in all the past ones. There's going to be a dedication of another one in the future. Now, let's get on to the New Testament. I want to go first of all to John 7. doesn't have anything to do with a piece of dedication, except I want to make a point here. As I said before, Christ went to the temple, normally on the Sabbath, and read the Scriptures. Uh, did that from childhood on. And here in John 7, verse 37, let's, uh, let's go back and get the context, because this is important here and also in John 10. Let's go back to verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So they were after Christ going to take him. Then said Jesus to them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go to him that sent me. Now there's a message here. Why did he say this? They were always after him, trying to take him, trying to kill him, trying to stone him, trying to get rid of him. Why did he say that? I'm going to go to him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me. Now, he knew who he was, right? He knew he was the Son of God. He knew he was going to his father and that he would come back again to save people. So he's telling these people I'm not going to be around. I'm not going to be available to you. Is he available to the world today? No. He said, I don't hear sinners. They're in sin. We just read about our nation and where it is, and he will not hear us. Jeremiah said, don't even pray for this people. They're not going to listen. They're not going to repent. You're wasting your time to go to our Father in heaven and ask him to bless America, because it ain't happening. And they will not repent. God's already said that. And his judgment was final, I believe, in 2017 when the shadow passed over the nation at noon. I believe that happened. So he's making a statement here. And this has to do with the plan of salvation as we're about to see. You'll seek me, but you won't find me. And where I am, you cannot go. Then said the Jews among themselves, where will he go that we will not be able to find him? They didn't understand anything about the plan of God. Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? Is he going to leave us alone and go talk to the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, you shall seek me and shall not find me? And where I am, there you cannot come. Then he gets into the last great day of the feast. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. Now, he was in the temple. He would have been in the temple on the last great day of the feast, because he always was. He said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. When is that going to be the great white throne judgment? He has just told them, I'm going away, and you can't follow me, and you can't go where I come. You won't be able to find me. And the world has been in that position ever since. And only the church understands the plan of God in the holy days and that salvation will not be offered in general to mankind until the great white throne judgment. Well, the millennium for a few. But essentially, the great white throne judgment is when these people will come up, because they're all dead now. They won't live into the millennium. So he's talking about them, and everybody that's followed, and everybody before. We understand that. But the context here is saying... Salvation is not open to you. You can't come to me. We know John six forty four. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. You could not come to God unless God opened your mind and drew you to him. You wouldn't be here today if he hadn't. Okay? We understand that. We know that. So, he told us a lot about the meaning of the last great day in one sentence. He cried aloud, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. That will not be available until the great white throne judgment. It's not available now. He still has to call those whom he will work with now. Then he opens it to any and everybody. That's what his message was on the last great day, Because that's the meaning of the last great day. Anybody can come. Anybody that wants to is welcome, come. So the fact that he was there on the last great day was nothing unusual. He always had been. But now he was preaching and explaining his purpose. So this became a very important one to include. It isn't included in the rest of them that he was there, but on this one it was because of what he had to say. Now consider that. It is mentioned briefly, one verse, but the context is the message and leading up to the message that he gave. He said, you can't come, but when the last great day and the meaning of it comes, then anybody can come, including you. Okay? He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By this spoke he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because he was not yet glorified. So it hadn't even been offered to a church yet, okay? Hadn't been offered to anybody the new covenant, salvation. Only the Old Covenant had been offered. So here he's saying, there's coming a time when you can all be part of it, but you can't right now, but there'll be a time when the Holy Spirit is available to anybody who seeks it. And out of them will come the living waters, his word, the water of the word. So the context here, and what he actually said, is very important to the reason it was said on the last great day. Okay? I'm giving you a principle here. It has nothing to do with piece of dedication except a principle of looking at the context and what Christ had to say at that time about that day. That becomes important, and this is a good example of that. Now let's go to John 10. John 10. Now, here's the one verse down here in verse 22, which just says, And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter, showing that it's the Feast of Dedication comes in the winter period of time. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So, he was there on the Feast of Dedication, and he walked on Solomon's porch. That's all it tells us about it. Now, again, he was always there on the weekly Sabbath. So, that would not have been anything of great note. So, why was he at the Feast of Dedication and why, at the Feast of Dedication, was he in the temple walking on Solomon's porch? Why is that included? It's in the Bible, part of God's Word. We're to live by every word of God. We're to walk as he walked. We're to do as he did. And that's what he was doing. Okay? If that's what he was doing, and I'm to do everything and live by every word of God... Is it possible I ought to be doing that, since that's what he did? The question. Now, why is this mentioned? Just like him speaking on the last great day of the feast, why is it mentioned? And we saw in the context, it was mentioned because he was telling those people, you can't come to God, and you can't come to me, and you can't go where I'm going, But there's coming a time, pictured by the last great day of the feast, when you can. Anybody can. So the reason that he mentioned these things was because it was the last great day, and that's what the meaning of the day was. Okay? I'm repeating, I know that. Now let's look at the context surrounding this one strange verse here in verse 22 and see if we can make some sense of why it even mentions that he was there at that time in the temple. Why? If we can answer that question we might answer why it is that I feel comfortable keeping the feast of dedication today even though the Jews do. They also keep the Holy Days, sort of. And they keep the Sabbath, sort of. Not just the way God says, but they keep it. I'm not going to throw out the Feast, the Sabbath, and the Holy Days because the Jays keep them. I'm going to keep them because God says keep them. Now, those are commanded assemblies. A Feast of Dedication is not. Unless you believe the command where it says, live by every word of God and all Scripture is here for correction, uh, instruction and in righteousness, and so on. All Scripture. This is part of Scripture. But I won't just beat you to death with that. Let's go back and examine this context. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, let's consider the last couple verses of chapter 9 before we go on with this. Verse 40, Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words that he'd been preaching, and said to him, Are we blind also? Because he'd been saying people are blind. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see... Therefore, your sin remains. (laughs) You think you can see? Okay, you see your sin. It's still there. So he's talking here to, again, the Pharisees. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you. So he's telling them, he's the shepherd, and there's no other way. Okay? They think they could go to Moses. They thought they could do this, or they could do that. But he says, no, there's only one way, that's through me. He'll reiterate that as he goes. He that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows us all. He called us by our names. He counts our hair, and so on. A stranger will they not follow. But will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the stranger. You can have animals that will come to their master, their shepherd, and they're afraid of other people. I've seen it with my own flocks. I don't know you. Zoom. So he's using a pastoral analogy here of the sheep, and he calls us sheep. He was the Lamb of God himself. This parable spoke Jesus to them, but they understood not what things they were which he spoke to them. They didn't want to accept him as a shepherd, and they didn't consider them his sheep. They, what in the world is he talking about? This, What's he telling us this sheep story for? Well, let's find out. So he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now they knew that ancient Israel had been called the lambs or the sheep of God. So he says, I am the door of the sheep. You confused? I'm it. Okay? Oh, you're it? Think they're going to believe that? All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and find pasture. He'll find what he needs to flourish and thrive. The thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy, which they were. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I'm here to bless my sheep and help my sheep. And you can't be one of them unless you come to me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. What was he going to do? He was going to die for whom? Not them. And he wasn't dying at that time for anybody in the past. Because he said on the last great day, those people aren't going to be saved till the great white throne judgment. So who was he talking to that would come to him? From the time he established the New Testament church He's talking here about those sheep who would come to him and to the apostles whom he sent. And the Pharisees weren't going to be accepting him or the apostles. So he's giving them a lesson here. They didn't get it, but that's okay. I'm going to give my life to the sheep. And then he was crucified. He is the hireling and not the shepherd who's owned the sheep or not sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. Satan's a wolf. He scatters sheep wherever he can. God's sheep, it began. Prophecies about the end times say that Satan's going to come after all those who have the Spirit of God. Daniel, Revelation 12, and so on. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You you want a God's sheep? Does God know you? Do you know him? He's talking about us here. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He died for you and me. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold... Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now, he was going to call some sheep then, but he says, I have others to come later. That's what he said on the last great day of the feast. Everybody can now come. That fold is for the future. But I'm talking about dying now for the sheep that I'm about to call. That's the context. Therefore, does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again? No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He could have gotten away, but he was a willing sacrifice. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. His father would resurrect him. This commandment have I received of my father. He had a guarantee from dad. You die, I'll resurrect you. Everything's going to be okay. Now, there was a division there for, again, among the Jews for these sayings. Many of them said, he has a devil. He's demon-possessed. He's mad. He's crazy. Why do you listen? Others says, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And he had been healing people and opening people's eyes. And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. Now, why is that inserted in here, actually in the middle of this story? He's not done with this story yet. It will continue down here. But a specific point is made of when he was telling this story, the Feast of Dedication. Now, he was about to do what? He was about to build a temple. The New Testament temple. Ephesians 2.20. Keep your finger here. I'll go back and read it to you. You don't have to turn to it. Five won't work. I better go back to two. Verse 19. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the house of God has Christ as the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We are the temple of God. He was about to die, and that's what he's telling them here. And he was going to form a sheepfold, a temple, a church, all the above, been called all those things. But he calls it a temple there at Ephesians 2, and he is the chief cornerstone of the temple. So the whole context here to these Pharisees is that I'm the shepherd of the sheep of God. I'm walking in the temple of God to show you that I am going to build a temple of God. And how was it going to be dedicated? He was going to die and become the sacrifice at the dedication of the New Testament temple of God. He was going to be resurrected and become the living head, the foundation and cornerstone of that temple. And he says, I'm the only way to salvation. So here he was, walking in the temple, at the Feast of Dedication, saying, I am about to die and rise and start a new temple, and dedicate it to my Father in Heaven, and you are going to be part of this temple. We are part of the dedication of the temple of God, of the New Testament church. We are also called to build a physical temple very shortly, which will also be dedicated to God as a witness and a light to the world. So he was about to do us when he wrote this. That's the whole context. Why is this one verse inserted in the middle of it? Let's go on down and see. It's stated specifically that this particular message was given during the dedication of the temple. Feast of the Dedication. And Jesus walked in the temple, again mentions the temple, in Solomon's porch, then came the Jews round about him on Solomon's porch and said to him, How long do you make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. What's this story about sheep and you being the shepherd? Come on, are you are you God or not? Level with us. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. I just told you a story about it and you didn't get it. You didn't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. What was he there to do? Build a church. Build a temple. To be the chief cornerstone of the temple and to have us be part of the building. That's what he was there for. That's why he's doing it and giving this talk at the Feast of Dedication, like he gave the talk about the people in the great white throne judgment, on the last great day of the feast he's doing the same thing here I do these works in my father's name but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I told you see this context goes on this wasn't two weeks later this was right there on the porch of Solomon in the temple (coughs) And he repeats then what he had said above that. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, the new covenant. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. They're secure as part of the temple of God. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Because so they would not accept that he was the good shepherd and that he was there to call and to start a new temple. So he was walking in Herod's temple there. Wasn't necessarily in that sense God's temple. It was Herod's who was had built it, who was not even, uh, well, he was maybe half Israelite and half Edomite. But he had restored the temple, and Christ had accepted that as a place to go and worship because he did it every week and read the scriptures there. So here was something that you might say was the tradition of the Jews and Herod building this temple back, but it was a replica of what had been before in the pattern of And Christ accepted that which had not been built by Moses, or by Solomon, or by Ezra, or Nehemiah, but had been built by Herod, who killed John the Baptist, the most righteous man who's walked. And yet he accepted that building, and was there preaching on the last great day, had a message. He was there preaching on the Feast of Dedication. Why? Why? Because he was talking about him being the shepherd of the sheep and the head of the temple. And he would build the temple. We are part of that temple that he built right after this. Died, resurrected, came back and started the church on Pentecost. So this was in the winter, and he died four or five months later. December to April. But he announced it to them here at the Feast of Dedication. So, A, he had accepted Herod's temple. He had accepted Feast of Dedication because he was there preaching a message about the temple of God in the temple, which he called the temple of God here, he was accepting it as that, whether he said it outright or not. He was there preaching and teaching who he was and who we would be. And here we are. So, it's scripture. Why is this mentioned in scripture? Because he gave a message about the temple that would be shortly thereafter, and is continuing today because we're also building blocks of it, not just the apostles And those people back then, it's referring to us here. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And he did it on the Feast of Dedication to make a point that we're to be part of the temple of God. So I'm quite comfortable keeping the Feast of Dedication because I know it has to do with me. It has to do with you. It has to do with anybody who is a sheep of the great shepherd, is who it has to do with. What the Jews do with it, that's their business. I could care less. How they keep the Sabbath, that's their business. I keep it different. I keep the holy days, keep them different than they do. I keep them on different days than they do, quite frequently. I keep the face dedication because I'm one of the lambs of Christ, who's the great shepherd, And he preached this sermon to them at the feast of dedication in the temple of Herod. And therefore, to me, it has validity. It's part of Scripture. It doesn't have to do with Jewish tradition. It's part of Scripture. Same with Purim. God delivered Israel, who worshiped him, and it was established there, and it was given, the dates are given for us, and it's been made a book of the Bible. And that's all it's about, is God delivering his people, and they, his people, set it up to be remembered forever. And since they did, and they were worshiping the true God at the time, I keep Purim because it's part of the word of God, and I live by every word of God as best I can, and the book of Esther is in it. And he has promised me deliverance in the future. So if God made Purim, Part of the Bible. I don't care how the Jews keep it. I don't care if they hiss and boo at Haman. That's their business. I keep it because God delivered his people. I keep it because he's going to deliver you and me pretty soon. And there is a historical precedent for it to show that he can do. And did he or did he not keep the oil in the lamps burning for eight days? I don't know but he kept the oil and the meal coming to the widow and to Elijah, and he fed the fishes, and there's precedence in the Bible for Christ doing that kind of thing. And if it didn't happen, then Christ still preached this sermon on the Feast of Dedication. And if it did happen, he's the one that kept them burning. So either way, I have to look at the context here See, what he preached, when he preached it, and where he preached it, because it becomes very, very important, that verse 22 and 23 did not need to be there just to tell the story about him being the shepherd. It's interjected right in the middle of the story. They came to him, he gave him the story, and he made it very plain, when it was and what he was doing and where he was doing it, and then he finished the story. So it's part and parcel and part of the context of one of the most important teachings that Christ ever gave, right here in John 10. So I've never explained it that way quite, and I never quite understood it that much. But I think it's become more clear to me why just reading this in context, and I'm quite comfortable with it. So that's why we're doing it today. If there's, I mean, this is something that we didn't do in Worldwide Church of God. It's something the one considered important, and I myself considered it, eh, just the Jews. But I think as I read this, I find out, oh, it's more than just the Jews. And what the Jews do is unimportant, but what I do is important. And if it's in this book, then I might better think about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? To live by every word of God? Well, whatever's in there, I better think about it. Okay, I'm way over time. Let's quit. So you got two sermons for the price of one.